Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik. These memes are not just funny memes. They become ways that we share ideas across geographical boundaries, social boundaries, and ethnic boundaries. So what we have to do is have some level of self-awareness to recognize when we are being scoped out to be the next human host of a meme. Because memes are desperate to be shared online. And while memes may be driving humanity, we get to decide whether we want to be the vehicle for memes to do so. Thank you. Our next guest is Benjamin Decker, is a technology researcher and former investigative journalist at the New York Times. He has produced research and papers that have been presented to, in testimony to the House Financial Services Subcommittee, submitted written testimony about domestic extremist financing to the January 6th Committee, and a former member of an advisory group to the New, New Zealand government on its policy effort to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content online. Ben is currently the CEO of Memetica, an open source and human intelligence intelligence digital investigative firm. Ben, welcome. Thank you. So tell us about Memetics. What, what so, is this thing that you've named your company after? So I think when people hear the word meme or the word memetic, uh, we often immediately start thinking about technology and computers because where do we see memes on the internet using our computers, our phones, our um, you know, smart tablets, uh, et cetera. But the reality is this, the concept is, is actually kind of a, a non-digital term. It's really about the cultural exchange of information and the currency kind of associated with that information being dependent on how many people are sharing it. So it, in a sense, we can almost think about memetics as a high school popularity contest. And, you know, rumors and stories or votes for, for prom king and queen, those popular people are going to have a larger currency of, you know, discussions around voting for them than, let's say, less popular people who don't, you know, do the whole campaign and, and, and everything like that. It's really about how we interact with different types of, of information and how we share those with the communities around us so so you built a whole company around the study of high school gossip or less. yeah I, I mean yeah. it's something i've always wanted to do uh, i will admit you know i was an assistant editor at my high school paper i didn't oh. quite make the full editor so it was really important for me to devote the rest of my life um to, to these kinds of things but no i mean at the same time right like a lot of the uh concepts that that we talk about at like a really high level you know, influence operations, disinformation, malinformation, they're really just different forms of rumors. And, and I think we can always distill these really lofty concepts down into basic forms of, of human communication about information that is true, that is partially true, that is not true. You know, movies have been made about this for since the beginning of movies being made, books, you know, for a long time as, as well. So, I think it, it, I've always had that curiosity in me to try to think about a lot of the like unknown unknowns and see if we can kind of give them a little bit of uh, definition, frankly. 
so, so something you said was really interesting to me about stories, right? And narrative and, and right, books and movies. So if a movie is good, it's telling a good story. Um, so in many ways, what you're studying is story structure, right? And how story structure draws crowds in and, and, then, and then controls the spread of that story. When I was a kid uh, in the 90s, and there were a lot of R.L. Stein kind of kids, you know, horror books and sort of make your own adventure, go this way or that way. And the whole goal of me being here is to try to make library science cool. Um, you know, people, we don't think I love about that. Yes. Things, right. We don't, we don't think about things like library science. We don't think about curation, right? Like we, we really enjoy museum experiences because a whole host of people have taken the time to intentionally place each piece of art and, and create obviously maybe one central narrative, but also opportunities. I can look this way. I can look that way. I can see things out of order. And, you know, when we talk about things like the current state of Twitter or content moderation. See how I did that? Um, what yeah. what we're seeing is, is a completely uncurated mess, right? Nobody is there to sort of create those um, consumption experiences anymore. And I think this is the first time in a very long time that a lot more people are realizing, wow, you know, it, it really is nice when people do intentionally, um, you know, create street signs and, and roadmaps and, and directions to, to get to one place or another, it's it's super convenient. Um, and now, you know, we're also seeing the pitfalls and, and the trappings of that. Like what happens if I get tripped up in a weird rabbit hole and all of a sudden I am, you know, a diehard believer in the birds aren't real conspiracy. Obviously it's the most dangerous one that exists, right? I mean, no, I, but you know, <laughs> yeah. the, that's the, you know, the innocent sort of radicalization rabbit yeah. hole. But but this is, this is one of those things that I was often really interested in as a kid too, because, um, you know, look, I don't think we talk enough about how fringe anonymous message boards like 4chan are actually older than Facebook, not by much, but more or less like have developed along um, different tracks uh, over the last um, almost 20 years. And, and I was someone who was very interested and curious about message board culture, um, fringe culture in general, you know, this is the 90s, like, um, and I was also really interested in why there's all this troubling content, but like, I am a normie, right? Like I go do my, my normie things in my normie life. And, you know, now I am a normcore adult who wears Patagonia and has a conventional job and all that stuff. And some people don't, right? There, there's, there's a whole mass shooter arc. There's a whole radicalization arc, extremism, conspiracies, et cetera. Um, so I think as an adult, I've always been very curious in why people choose one lane over another. Um, and I've been very lucky to kind of stumble into an industry space where there's been um, a commercial need, frankly. Otherwise, like I'd probably still be DJing or doing something totally <laughs> like non, uh, I don't know, impactful in, in sort of like a serious sort of, um, you know, policy or, or security way. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about adulting. Um, you're the CEO, right? You're the boss of Medica. Can you actually just explain what your company does? Let's move from kind of like the goals, the broad goals and objectives that you just mentioned, more to kind of like the tangible day-to-day role of the company um, and what it's trying to fulfill. What task is it trying to perform? For sure. So, you know, we've established that the information landscape is a, is kind of a mess. Digital literacy is, is something that we are 
uh, underperforming in as a country, I think, compared to maybe some of our peers around the world. And individuals who end up in any form of sort of the public eye, whether you're a media professional, where you're a public health professional, an elected official, uh, an NGO with a public presence, uh, an influencer, anyone uh, in this sort of newly emerged you know, Web 3.0 or whatever we want to refer to the current iteration of the internet, uh, the wide array of threats that can come your way that are both kind of cyber in nature and also um, you know, physical types of threats um, that are offline in nature are constantly becoming um, you know, an increasing concern for everybody. Um, so a lot of people are not aware of the types of um, personally identifiable information that's just openly available on Google. Um, for example, just you know, as one thing. So um, what we do is we work both um, you know, in terms of building our own um, proprietary sort of social listening tools, obviously not in like a commercial pitch kind of way, but you know, we're really interested in broad-based social listening. Uh, there's a million ways to get you know, Twitter data and everything else pretty easily. But for all the fringe social media platforms, there's just never a way for me to do research or any type of monitoring across, um, you know, the fringe platforms ad nauseum, everything from, you know, 4chan to Truth Social, um, Telegram, et cetera. Um, so we started building that um, ourselves. But the but the bigger thing and kind of the, the raison d'etre of the whole thing is um, in 2018, when I was at Harvard, uh, I had, a, you know, a professional bucket list opportunity to speak on a panel at the Council on Foreign Relations. Truly like one of the, you know, coolest things I'd ever been looking forward to and still like a, you know, top uh, achievement in my own um, weird head. Uh, it's the only CFR YouTube video that's ever had to have the comments turned off and it turned into a multi-month um, smear campaign against myself and the other panelists um, encouraged by um, Russian um, state media, as well as um, French communities in places like 4chan. Um, so we got doxxed, swatted repeatedly. And my employer, I mean, was concerned about a mass shooter. The cops thought I was crazy. And everyone I knew in the tech spaces had no idea how to help me. They just felt really bad. Um, so we got an R&D grant from Jigsaw, um, Alphabet's R&D incubator, to basically see if we could build a system to proactively identify early indicators of targeted harassment from fringe platforms. And that very quickly spun out into a product vertical. Um, as a former journalist, like all of my colleagues frequently talked about how hard it is to deal with these kinds of things. So we basically built a, a threat uh, monitoring and intel system, everything from the taxonomy of how we even talk about these types of threats to actually tracking them, uh, reporting them out and really working with you know our our partners in terms of the um, security teams at media companies, NGOs, nonprofits, um, and other types of uh, institutions to help manage and mitigate against um, targeted harassment, uh, disinformation campaigns, violent extremism, uh, because it's all happening in this weird. Uh, neutral space in the Venn diagram between cybersecurity and physical security. And nobody really knows fully what to do yet. And there's not even a lot of legal precedent for how you actually triage and manage these types of things. Um, so that in, in, in essence is, is really um, what we work with organizations to um, mitigate basically and, and improve the way that they deal with these types of threats. We know 
kind of the idea of what Mimetica does. How can we play this out or kind of walk us through what the company does um, in particular instances such as January 6th, which I understand you guys did quite a bit of work with? Yeah, Jan 6th was a lot. Um, I think, I mean, look, there's a couple avenues to this. I think in general, a lot of our clients, particularly you know, media clients, who are are kind of retrofitting international security policies to the domestic context now, um, you know, which is an area I had worked on many, many years ago. So, you know, helping to to translate that into how we operate in the U.S. Has been, was a really good sort of um, table setter. But then you have folks who are out in the field covering Stop the Steal protests in November, December, and you're you're constantly looking at volumes of conversation on fringe platforms, then contextually, what is actually being said, right? Have we, have we, people started talking um, tactically. There was just this shift in like the third week of December. And that was a, a point where we started writing up almost daily memos for all of our clients, sending out a final one in the morning of the fifth, basically saying for all media who are gonna be there, here are our concerns. Right, like a classic sort of intel briefing. Like we love, you know, betting on probabilities um, and likelihoods. Uh, and there weren't very many conditionals to get to this gets violent. And this is exactly how it gets violent. Um, so I think in that sense, the proactive preparation so that people, so we're, we're understanding and analyzing online discussions and applying them to real world um, physical security Context um, on one. Um, number two, uh, our clients are then you know getting harassed online for factual reporting about January sixth. So then you're working with clients, and then NGOs are putting out statements, and they're getting harassed, and and then you're working to basically triage, look at the volume, where it's happening, who's saying it, and what is an actual credible threat of violence, and what can just be. I don't, ignored is the wrong word, but, um, you know, part of my French, but most of the time shit posting is just shit posting and it doesn't become the serious like concern. Um, so in, in that sense, I think those are kind of the, the big buckets, but then, you know, it's, it's, it's long form having been, you know, an OSINT, um, you know, investigator for, um, a very long time, particularly out um, in the Middle East for many years and working on, you know, war crimes investigations, rights violations. Um, it dawned on me to reach out to some of my colleagues um, who I'd worked with in the past at the New York Times. And suddenly uh, we started churning out stories on Oath Keepers, IDing militia groups in the, you know, days and weeks afterwards. Um, a lot of that visual investigative reporting um, was then later used in the um, criminal complaint documents um, by FBI agents and actually arresting those. And um, Kelly Meggs, uh, the Florida chapter leader, um, we were we first ID'd him and he's now been convicted of um, seditious conspiracy, I believe, alongside Stuart Rhodes in um, that case. And then a lot of that work. And at work, I mean, you know, thousands of hours of staring at uh, live streams and IDing little people and, and, and doing the full OSINT workups after that. Um, a lot of that work was then later uh, incorporated into the film uh, Day of Rage, um, <laughs> which the New York Times, I believe, briefly had actually out in um, 
theater. So I think like the, the kind of long form investigations, that's the real, um, you know, rocket scientist kind of, um, you know, Rubik's cube solving puzzles that from an investigator standpoint is like the opposite of big data analysis and, and parsing. And I, I think it's really fun. Um, I think those types of capture the flag concepts um, being in this space is, is exciting, right? I think that there's just this, this subconscious um, thrill of doing this kind of work and, and knowing that it has the positive value and impact uh, is tremendously important. So there, there's a couple of things there. And I, I think more really for myself and maybe the listeners to kind of um, unpack and define. So a memetica is based off the term emetics, I presume, the Richard Dawkins, uh, the evolutionary biologist, right? And he, he coined uh, the term meme in the well, 70s, I think, right? But it first coined in the 70s, but uh, it's not it's not really Dawkins, I think, that that we subscribe to as much as um, Newark Schiffen, who kind of redefined um, memetics in, in the early um, aughts as about like taking it away from biology and, and applying it sort of the cultural exchange of, of, um, information in that sense. Yeah. Cause it, Dawkins was kind of interesting when he, he coined the term, it was, and I don't know, but it was, it was referring to the transfer of different cultural phenomena across evolutionary and, uh, and then it was transformed to what we have our understanding now, but you had just mentioned the notion of open source intelligence as well. Can you kind of help us explain, is there a difference, is there a similarity or how does that Venn diagram probably overlap with one another? For sure, I think OSINT is the the methodology and the tool stack that is used to understand the flow of information. Um, so when I first got my start uh, as an open source investigator, I was working in uh, a corporate intelligence position based in the Middle East. And we had a number of clients who were operating in countries in the region where there was this uh, up and coming group that later we became uh, aware of as the Islamic State. And, you know, whether this is like anything, you know, associated with the Syrian civil conflict, um, you know, or, or, or elsewhere, frankly, um, we started to watch the propagation of videos, recruitment in different social media platforms using different, um, you know, forms of language, different languages, different types of multimedia content to, to different audiences, and then watching people engage with it and actually sort of join. Um, that was only possible because you knew how to write precise query searches on Twitter in Arabic or on Google and, you know, trends and looking at sort of custom dates. So it was really, I think, very much like internet MacGyver investigations, frankly, where like that really is the exact um, ethos that I was sort of brought up and trained in. And, and you have groups like Bellingcat, which, I mean, Elliot Higgins, when it, before it started, he uh, early in the Syrian civil war, we, you know, had this blog, Brown Moses, and that was kind of the only place online that you really saw people doing similar work. And then there was kind of this hive mind on, on Twitter of everyone who was sort of um, working in the space. And I think these are uh, concepts that are much, that were originally used, I would say, you know, as intelligence collection methodologies, but 
Um, when I left that industry and was thinking a lot about journalism, I, I was surprised that people weren't incorporating OSINT into investigative, um, you know, news research yet. Uh, you know, things like visual forensics did not exist at that point, right? We were just like sharing screenshots of things with each other. And I think the industry has really grown up a lot in the years. Um, the fact that uh, open source intelligence from social media is used in ICC investigations at The Hague is the most telling of that. You have some of the biggest um, Russia-associated, you know, mysteries of recent years, all of which have more or less been kind of solved by a nonprofit collective, right? Like that's, nobody really saw that coming. So I think in terms of what, what open source intelligence really is, it's, it's MacGyvering your way through the internet to have an impact um, because nobody realizes the kind of uh, trail that you're constantly leaving on and offline. Do you think that OSINT is uh, is more important than the, than covert information that you know that maybe that covert information can't be put into context without it? I don't know. I I think look, they're all part of a a really important mosaic or a, you know a, a narrative fabric of metadata, basically. Um, you know whether it's technical or you know not. Um, but I think the value of the sort of OSINT forensics, let's just say, and the data that you can acquire, it has less bias than like some of the intent is removed from the communication. Whereas if you're receiving it from someone, um, you know, in a human to human face to face interaction, there's a lot of additional um, things that might be happening under the hood. Um, so I think having the opportunity to do that level of due diligence is mission critical for any type of institution in any industry in any um you know environment frankly uh you talked about your background in linguistics um and i have some background in that too and i'm curious how you how you think about linguistics and what you do now and if that sort of was a natural progression or not very much so uh, for me, I think like one of the most interesting things about walking into, um, you know, my first day of Arabic class as a freshman in college um, and, and sticking with it, despite uh, there being no English at any point, you know, throughout the first year was, wait, there is a there is a formal version of a language and then there's a colloquial version. They're like really distinct and separate things. That's so cool. Um, so I invested a lot of time in colloquial dialects because I wanted to be able to travel and, and talk to people just in a pragmatic sense. I think with the work that, that I do now with, with Mimetica, it's about the sort of different, you know, it's not just uh, two different dialects anymore. You know, there are fringe dialects, there's Twitter dialect, there's media dialect, there's science dialect, right? The amount of conspiracies that are emerging in public health related academic journal portals is insane right now, right? And so it, it's how many different languages, right? For each sort of problem set, do you need to learn, think about and apply? And that's kind of some of the most exciting stuff for me, because I really, this gets back to, again, 
like library science and digital literacy, right? Like how do we get everyone to apply the scientific method to the screen every time that they look at something? That's a little bit of an impossible task to a degree, um, but communicating things out so that we can one day build, you know, train the trainer type um, materials for, I don't know, you know, five and six year olds, right? Like everyone's gonna be on the internet anyway so let's try to focus as early on as we can on teaching people the different dialects, um, A, for, you know, cultural awareness in, in a not bad way, right? But, but also for being more informed, you know, citizens of the, the internet, basically. I think, like, this is an, an super important if we learned how to purchase the Encyclopedia Britannica CD-ROMs and put in, you know, one for a letter and, like, how do you search bar and things like that there is some sort of translation of, of how that happens now. I think the the challenge gets back to what we started with in terms of like, well, you know, what do we think about memes are uh, invoke emotional responses. Sometimes they're edgy. They make us laugh. They make us, you know, a little bit terrified. They make us, you know, all, all types of things. We have to be producing educational material that is more engaging and captivating. Right, like the the translation uh, or the popularity, I would say, of um, graphic novels and the revival of the comic book industry is one great way. And we've seen CISA and others try to at least experiment with this in their own um, public messaging. But the reality is, like, yeah, we want seven year olds like making spicy memes about how to be safe on on the internet, basically. Um, so I think that's like that's really the end goal. And, and that's why linguistics has always been so important because it's not even about words anymore, right? It's about images and words or video and multimedia in itself has just gotten so complex. So it's like, what do we even uh, define as a language anymore? I, I want to kind of go back a little bit here real quick. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, you had obviously mentioned Russia. Um, and the, you know, what comes to mind now, at least at this recording is the Ukrainian war, uh, and open source intelligence is, you know, uh, become a huge issue or a salient issue, uh, in terms of its role. And I'm just, uh, in the conflict, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, what, what are your thoughts and observations in terms of the field and discipline of open source intelligence with respect to the war? I think there's, there's one really critical thing that we i think have to keep in mind when we think about influence operations we're uncovering them more and we're able to define what they are but we're still not doing a very good job of analyzing and then communicating out how many people did this reach what kind of impact did it have and and that's the part when it applies to ukraine we've seen a wide range of conspiracy theories emerge everything from you know the Biolab to the super soldier stuff to the crisis actor false flag um, conspiracies, but who are they trying to sell this on? Right, like I, I read a research paper recently, not to like get political or anything, but that like sentiment amongst Twitter users who followed certain Republican elected officials or, or uh, like tended to be more anti-Ukraine. Which again, like I, I'm not trying to like throw out this unpacked thesis into you know an important prestigious podcast like this, but at the same time, yeah, if people are 
anti the U.S. efforts in Ukraine, one could argue that maybe some of the Russian conspiracy theories have had an impact in the U.S. I haven't really had any seen any research on that because again, it, it's about measuring the impact. Like, did we know these things were going to emerge? Of course. Did we know what platforms they were going to emerge on? Of course. I think it's been interesting to see the tech platform responses um, in terms of limiting access to RT. Um, even recently on Telegram, um, made a decision to actually block RT in the U.S. Um, so in terms of we're trying to inoculate uh, our, our country from Russian disinformation, where this gets interesting is you have these emerging fringe platforms, for everything from Gab, you know, Parler, uh, Trump's Truth Social, among others. That's an area where Russian propaganda can just hang out set up camp, you know, start handing out s'mores and see what kind of traction they can get. And what's really concerning is those are completely unmoderated platforms, predominantly American users. So there's this weird back door into a subset of predominantly like MAGA supporters, basically. So I think from a national security perspective, that's, that's a real Achilles heel that uh, I haven't really seen a lot of conversations about. But I know in terms of like what we specifically are also tracking as a company as it relates to it, that's our primary area of focus. Because we really do want to understand like what kind of uptake can these things actually have? In what was it, 2016, there was the story about the fake protest um, at, the, at the mosque, I think, in, in Texas or something that was completely generated by Russian trolls on Facebook. I think we could see more of that emerge, um, you know, in the next... 12 to 24 months, particularly in the run up to, like if this conflict is still going on in the run up to the 2024 election, there's gonna be a lot more, um, you know, uh, TV show crossover in terms of plot lines, I think. So if we take a step back and we look at the bigger picture of American society today, um, you know, the, the rise of, right-wing extremism, um, this norm normalization of um, violent and extremist rhetoric in, in the media and by you know, political leaders. Um, so given that, and then you know, given all your research and expertise, I'd be curious, what are your thoughts on the, the state of the United States today? Um, what do you foresee in the future um, for the country? I think we're moving in a concerning polarizing direction. Is this it? I don't think so. Um, I think there's there's oftentimes a lot of sensational uh, or sensationalism around like this civil war concept that comes up during literally you know every election cycle for the last uh, four or five. And I think there is a huge opportunity for centrists to help bring everyone back to the table whether that opportunity gets squandered or not i really don't know um but i think the concerning the most concerning sides to me is that it feels like everyone would prefer more to put on their political party jersey than their USA men's world cup Jersey. And I, and I think that's the, that's the most concerning 
thing for for me right now is is it's hard to imagine a less partisan America right now. Um, and look, there was no mini Jan sixth uh, movement that really uh, emerged out of the midterms. I think obviously, you know, the Georgia election is runoff is today. So we don't know yet in Arizona, there's still obviously murmurings of stop the steel conspiracy theories, but what happened in 2020 did not happen this time. And I think that's, that's an important point that we often gloss over and, and ignore. Um, so I think I'm trying to maybe underhype things for everyone who might consume this at some point, who is in the middle of a doom scroll, um, has been reading some really intense, um, you know, reporting, research, whatever, or just seeing things online, like we're still working on it and we're still trying to understand it, but I don't, I don't think we're too far gone yet. Sorry, I got, I got to push back on this one. I hear this all the time. The 19th century sucked for America, right? We had crazy partisanship. And my take has always been that politics has always been about identity groups, right? It's never been, it's been about, in your terms, right? it's been about belonging to a certain story, right? And, and then hating on the other story out there. So, I mean, big deal. Right. The, like the quiescent period of American politics after the end of the Cold War is over. That was the aberration, not the norm. I, I don't disagree with that at all. I guess the question is, can we forge a postmodern or post Cold War like national identity that's not just killing brown people? Um, like that's I th- like that. That's like legitimately the other thing, because I think. What we saw with the shift from, you know, from GY and, you know, the global war on terror to uh, maybe the Trump era and, um, you know, the the Biden administration is there is no like that was that was where the two narratives really parsed. And that's how you get stuff like mm-hmm. both keepers who are taken seriously, then considered crazy and then try to overturn, um, you know, our, our, our very um, democracy. So it's. We have an opportunity, and I just hope we don't um, squash it because this can't be about the rest of the world anymore. It has to be about us. And yeah, I hear your skepticism and pessimism, and I agree with you, right? I, I think this is there's a lot of wishful um, thinking, but there's also like, what about what happens in 20 years, right? Like, what you know, our families, our kids, like, what are we? doing like people used to make the jokes about like yeah you know making my move to canada plans but nobody moved to canada right like nobody did and we're all still here and i think that that speaks volumes to i don't know how like there is a big anchor in america that we all have and i think we all want so there's always right there's always going to be like the the partisan stuff on the fringes but can we make the the table in the middle a little bit bigger? And people have to want to do that. And I, I'm concerned that people don't want to. I want to thank you for joining us on in politics. You've really helped us understand what is a growing and obviously important discipline and one that will uh, undoubtedly uh, continue to, to grow and, and have a significant impact uh, not only within the United States, but obviously uh, around the world. So uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Now time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt.
So, hey, I, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, I'm totally intrigued by bigger questions that I hope we can, we can convince him to come back on to talk about, uh, about the role of, of what he's doing, right? This way of, of seeing and understanding the world, both for you know, his corporate clients, uh, for journalism, uh, and for intelligence, that this is all being wrapped up in this, this set of tools, uh, you know, uh, centered around storytelling. We didn't get to talk a lot about that, but I really want to uh, talk to him more about his idea of storytelling and what it does in stories as a, as these like devices and memes. Yeah, Ben. Ben was awesome. I think there was a lot more that we could have obviously talked about, and we'll definitely have to chat with him uh, again um, because I, I think, like you were saying, that you know this this notion of linguistics and notion of storytelling, uh, how it's influenced our society, um, but also kind of providing a little bit more rigor uh, in terms of how we study this this new phenomenon, um, you know, how we use open source intelligence uh, for him, from his perspective, for his clients, um, but, you know, to influence policy and clearly uh, to help support um, democracy in the United States and the important work that um, he and his team have done with respect to uh, January 6th. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to talk to him about that too. I, I am a pessimist, you know, like he said, I mean, he said he agrees. But I, this idea, right, where he says, well, I want to find uh, this postmodern nationalism, that, that makes my hair stand up on end um, as a longtime student of nationalism and, and being frightened of it in any way, shape, or form. Right? What, 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 what protects us against postmodern nationalism becoming uh, you know, a January 8th version in, in 30 years from now? So I think that's an interesting question, too. There's just so much here on, on sort of both sides. You know, another area that we could have actually talked about um, is not just simply Russian PSYOP operations, um, but also, um, you know, when we see these kind of videos, open source intel videos um, of the Ukraine war or satellite imagery um, or people just simply sharing, you know, um, at the battlefield level um, stuff that's happening in the, the the Ukrainian war. I think that's a whole nother phenomenon um, that we could have chatted about um how do we digest it um how do we kind of understand the implications of all these videos as well and i think back when we, we've had conversations with military experts before who kind of you know say well on the one hand it's really important right uh, especially if you can quickly locate russian troop movements um or maybe um some other event in the battlefield that might influence um you know public opinion um you know uncovering mass graves for example that's all very important but you know, some tend to be a little bit more skeptical uh, that, well, these are just really minute kind of events. All right. This is not influencing the broader operation of the war. Right. And so there's that kind of that debate. Um, and I'd be interested what he thinks about it. And, yeah, and, yeah. and, and I mean, clearly, I, given your expertise, what you, you the two of you would have. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I stayed away from it. I didn't I didn't want to, you know, uh, to hijack stuff. But I mean, that's just fascinating. I mean, that's that's a whole issue about how those you know military experts are focusing on on machinery and tactics at that level and not i think the storytelling of the war which which might be what wins or loses it in the end but i'll leave it at that i would love to have him back on um and and dig out more of that and you know maybe we should get bellingcat on we can we can pull that one off uh, yeah yeah, so we'll we'll leave it at uh, storytelling then, uh, and hopefully we'll have uh, Ben back on. I, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Politic. Please be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes, and please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. Until next time, thank you for listening.